The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmonton and on the podcast this week, James Heal says the gloves are off as Labour's campaigning takes a bitter turn, Mary Wakefield worries that she's raising a snowflake and Gus Carter tells us about the colourful history of the green man. Up first, James Heal. When Rishi Sunak became Tory leader, the party was 30 points behind Labour. That kind of deficit has historically been terminal for a political party. But since then, inflation has slowed, the Northern Ireland Protocol has been resolved, and a deportation deal with Albania meant small boat arrivals fell for the first time on record. That Labour lead has fallen close to 15 points, one poll last weekend put it as low as 11. A Keir Starmer defeat is now at least conceivable. This is the context in which Labour has tried a new tactic, attacking the Prime Minister personally. He is the Tories' greatest single weapon, says one Shadow Cabinet member. People see him as quiet, reliable and even impressive, even if they think his party is a smouldering wreck. Labour is seeking to play dirty in the run-up to May's local election. Hence the adverts asking voters as they think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison, and claiming that Rishi Sunak doesn't. This was only the first step in the new strategy. Attacking Sunak's rich Indian wife was the second. It's all part of a broader attack plan, crime in week one, cost living in week two, with health coming next. Inside Labour's headquarters at 160 Blackfires Road, the mood is unrepentant, with the local elections being seen as a dry run for general next year. As one Labour insider says, nice doesn't win elections. Michael Duga, who was a spokesman in Gordon Brown's number 10 before becoming an MP, spoke for many in Selma's team when he praised the strategy. This stuff works. Oppositions in particular have to controversialise to cut through. This is certainly a school of thought. If a claim is seen to be untrue, it will cause a fuss, thereby magnifying the claim. In the 2005 campaign, Brown said the Tories would cut public spending. Michael Howard actually planned a spending increase, just not as much of an increase as Labour. Brown insisted that the Tory plan, therefore, represented a cut. There's been some mention of Dominic Cummings' Brexit campaign tactic, in which he claimed that Britain sent £350 million a week to the EU. There were constant arguments over the accuracy of using a gross rather than net figure, but the outrage only drew attention to the cost of EU membership. That played into an existing narrative, as everyone knew the EU is expensive, says one Brexiteer. No one thinks Rishi Sunak is a pedo. Some Labour voices agree. They believe that such tactics inevitably backfire as dubious claims strike voters as dishonest and desperate. The trouble for Starmer is that his shadow cabinet is split on the effectiveness of fighting dirty. As the fuss grew over the Sunak advert last week, a loyalty test was applied to Labour figures who would share the controversial claim on social media. Steve Reid, Labour's pugnacious justice spokesman, did so with glee, publishing it multiple times. Others did so only once. But of the 31 members of the Shadow Cabinet, 13 did not share any of the first three attack adverts. Some MPs privately complained to the Labour leader. Starmer, never the most natural broadcaster, is yet to defend the advert in person. Britain could well be in a general election campaign by this time next year. The default scenario is the autumn of 2024, but some around Sunak seen the appeal of May if things go their way. Many of Labour's 100-strong army of political advisers, wonks and spinners are familiar with the bitter taste of defeat from Ed Miliband and Remain campaigns. They have been boosted by training sessions from the teams behind recent Labour and Democratic triumphs in Australia and America. Sticking with a more confrontational strategy will require, in the words of one Labour source, advisers with enough balls not to stress when things get heated. So many of them haven't been in government or in the fire of it. 
The Tories, for their part, also welcomed the late return, seeing the dirty tricks as a hangover from the Brown campaign which was ultimately unsuccessful in the 2010 election. We've always said among ourselves that if we enter the new year with Labour's lead down to 10 points, then we can win, says one Sunak aide. We didn't expect to be down to 11 points by Easter. We're betting that Starr will panic in the heat of an election campaign. We might be seeing that already. The current Tory focus, however, on projecting an image of competence around the Prime Minister, that Rishi gets stuff done while Starmer shouts on the sideline. The Tories see the fracas over the Sunak advert as a sign of a wider Labour campaigning weakness. Starmer's party is obsessed with social media adverts, while the Tories focus on local voters' concerns about issues such as the ULES charges for motorists. Meanwhile, Tory fundraising is going better than expected, with healthy donations for the first quarter. An expansion of the Conservative Research Department, often charged with the darker election-winning arts, is on the cards. There'll be a time and a place to respond to the Labour attack ad, says one senior advisor. A career as a human rights barrister is not a particular strong footing on which to start a fight like this. Likely targets include Starmer's defence of tariff suspects and his time running the Crown Prosecution Service. Labour says that it is, for the first time in years, ready for combat. One aide dismisses the notion that the Tories were ever planning to play by the Queensbury rules. For 13 years, Labour has lost, again and again. The Tories have always been willing, they believe, to bend the truth. From Brown's smirking face on Tory posters which read, I let 8,000 criminals out early, to the dubious 40 new hospitals claim in 2019. Next time, Labour vows, it will be different. One thing is for sure, things can only get bitter. That was James Heal. Next, Mary Wakefield. I am actively contributing to the decline of the West and to the collapse of our civilization. I realised this last week when I found myself standing behind a metal turnstile in the French Alps, watching my smallish son on the other side of the turnstile step into a bubble lift going up the mountain to the nursery slope. He was with an instructor from the French ski school, the ESF, surrounded by other children and entirely safe. He's just turned seven, yet I behaved like a distressed cow watching her calf hauled off to market. I weaved and bobbed, trying to keep him in my line of sight. I craned over the barrier with mad staring eyes. My son's class was Les Flocons, the snowflakes, and each child had a large snowflake printed on his yellow bib. Some small part of me recognised how comically fitting that snowflake was, even as I barged my way past an elderly couple into the next bubble car and waved frantically through the window at my son's receding form. Up on the mountain, I stalked the little flocon, tracking my son's red trousers. What if he fell, lost sight of the guide? What if he slid backwards into the lift machinery? I'm not proud of this behaviour. I know it's shameful. I mention it only in the interests of research. On our flight out, I read a blog by the American psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, in which he outlines the subject of his next book, an attempt to understand why it's the children of the Anglosphere who are so especially anxious. The provisional title of the book is Kids in Space. Back in 2018, Haidt and his co-author, Greg Lukianov, published The Coddling of the American Mind, which detailed the crisis facing Gen Z in the USA. The trouble with the kids, explained Haidt, is that they've come to believe three great untruths. The first untruth is that they themselves are fragile and easily damaged. This is why they think misgendering and microaggressions cause actual harm. The second great untruth is that their own feelings are a guide to reality. And the third is that life is a constant struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor, between good and evil. Hence the popular notion that anyone in power is a scumbag, whoever it is, and all minorities, however they behave, are as pure as the driven snow. If you fancy a look at these untruths in action, just dig out the video from a few days ago 
of student activists screaming at the female American swimmer Riley Gaines. The fact that Riley holds the view that trans women should not compete in women's sports is so overwhelming to the kids that they ululate and shriek like survivors of a massacre. Height's new thesis, based on data from surveys and from our health services across the Anglosphere, is that this emotional fragility stretches particularly across the English-speaking world, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK. He blames smartphones and he blames parents. If the Anglosphere is producing snowflakes, it's because mothers like me have bred them. British parents are different, more coddling than other Europeans, he thinks, and my week in the Alps only goes to show he's right. As I took the bubble lift back down into the valley, I thought of a parenting book given to me by my good friend when I was pregnant, the only one I've ever read or felt the need to. It's by an American, Pamela Druckerman, who moved from the US to Paris with her daughter, and it describes how extremely and amusingly self-possessed French children are relative to their American peers, and how little their parents micromanage them. French children don't throw food, it's called. Someone should write another. French ski guides don't look back. I noticed during my week in the Alps that the men and women of the ESF don't fuss and chivy. They don't obsessively count their little charges or tick them off a list. They just lead from the front and trust the flocon to bob along behind them. It's extraordinary to English eyes. Perhaps French parents don't sue. They certainly don't catch the next bubble lift so as to show their child they're not alone or beat on the bubble plexiglass like Dustin Hoffman in the final scenes of The Graduate. French parents just kiss their three-year-olds and leave. And because they assume that their children can take care of themselves, for the most part, they do. A while ago, I signed up to Jonathan Haidt's Let Grow project, which asks panicky Western parents to make a pledge to give their kids some freedom. We make a commitment to step back we will allow frustration and imperfection. That's the pledge. Well, since I made that promise, I now realise, the only parenting resolution I've really kept is to make sure there's an Apple AirTag tucked in my son's trouser pocket whenever he's on a trip. I dimly remember I once thought it creepy to secretly track a child. Now it seems a reasonable thing to do. What about Britain, America and Australia encourages this paranoid style in parenting? Why do those of us who grew up independent and resilient deny our kids the freedom we valued so much? I'm looking forward to the answers Height provides. And all I can advise him is that it's going to take more than a parent pledge to save future generations. We snowflake maker parents are masters of self-deception. On day two of ESF ski school, after resolving firmly to be more French, I disgraced myself again. As I went to follow the flocons up in the bubble once more, I realised I'd left my pass behind. The turnstile wouldn't turn. Did I take this opportunity to let go and let grow? I did not. I was seized by a vision of my son waiting for me like Greyfriars Bobby, refusing to budge until I appeared as promised to wave him off. So I waited until the lift operator's back was turned and jumped the barrier. At the top, heart pounding, I leapt from the lift just in time to see him rounding the corner, hard up on the teacher's heels, not looking back. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Gus Carter. All hail our pagan king. The time has come to lay down your crosses and take up the bough of oak. Britain is to return to the old ways, at least if you are to believe the conspiracy theorists, who were distressed to see, on the bottom of the coronation invitation sent out last week, the face of a green man staring back at them. His eyes are bright, 
His mouth exudes fronds of ivy. The green man calls to us. Depending on your particular view of the world, his inclusion is either an affront to Christian decency or a jolly salute to our monarch's peculiarities. The green man is a playfully sinister envoy of the otherworldly. His face, either made entirely of leaves or a fleshy human screaming forth foliage, is carved into hundreds of parish churches. The king will pass under a foliate head when he walks through Westminster Abbey's choir screen on Coronation Day. The green man symbolises fertility and rebirth. Examples are found across Europe. There is a green man in the 6th century Palace of Constantinople, others in the Freiburg Minster Spire. One theory has it that the symbol emerged during the Neolithic period, an element of the matriarchal religion of the Danube Basin. From there, the green man made his way into Celtic religion, and perhaps the cult of Dionysus, whose adherents would daub their faces with wine and beards of ivy. There are stories, too, of green men in English history. In the 12th century, it is said that fishermen recovered a green man from the waters off the Suffolk coast. He was imprisoned in Orford Castle, a few miles from where radar was invented, and refused ever to speak. Nearby, in Woolpit, there is a tale of two green children who appeared in the village, speaking an unknown language and refusing to eat anything other than broad beans. The boy died, but the girl eventually learned English, claiming to come from an entirely green world called St Martin's Land. How did this peculiar symbol make its way into England's churches? The author, Paul Kings North, has an alluring theory. The Norman invasion did not end with 1066. Anglo-Saxon guerrillas spent years fighting against the invading force, kidnapping noblemen and attacking William soldiers. These fighters were known by the Normans as the Silvatici, meaning wild or from the forest. In English, they were called the Green Men. When the invaders tore down the old wooden Anglo-Saxon churches, the native stonemasons charged with rebuilding them in the Norman style hid symbols of resistance in the medieval architecture. These green men would watch the new Norman lords, these foreigners who had destroyed the ancient rights of England. One rebel was a landowner known as Hereward, based on the Isle of Ely within the marshy Fenlands of East Anglia. He was eventually defeated in 1071. The green man is still a particularly popular pub name in this part of the world. I asked Andrew Jameson, who drew the coronation invitation, how the green man had come about. He told me it was, quote, My choice entirely. The green man seemed appropriate, as he's a symbol of spring and new beginnings, and is a nod to his majesty's love of nature. When I mentioned the rebellious history of the green man, I heard nothing back a mystery befitting our esoteric monarch. That's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmonton, and I hope you join us again next week. Mm -hmm.